Welcome to Conversatio, the Belmont Abbey College podcast. This podcast aims to form and transform our community so that we, each of us can reflect God's image. I'm your host, Sarah, and today I'm joined by two guests. First, Stephen Miss, the Vice President and Athletic Director of Belmont Abbey College, and Dr. Joseph Waisaki, the Dean of the Honors College. Today we will be discussing the book, A River Runs Through It, um, but before we dive more fully into that, I'll let our guests more fully introduce themselves. Dr. Waisaki. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, I appreciate you having us, and thanks, Stephen, for, for uh, being able to do this. We've been talking about this for years. Uh, Stephen and I, uh, we have a common love of this book, and, um, and from, well, and, and fishing for me. But, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think I need to say too much more in the way of an introduction, except that, um, as many people know, the Honors College at Belmont Abbey is dedicated to the study of the great books in the Western tradition. And, uh, you know, this book hasn't quite made the canon yet, but... Um, I do think that it's important to study good books too, uh, as we as we pursue the great books, and that um, ultimately there's just this love of learning from books, right? Not about them, but learning from them. And I think that this book has a whole lot to teach us. So, uh, you know, from the standpoint of the Honors College, I'm really excited to talk about this with uh, with Stephen. So, Stephen. Yeah, and thanks also uh, for the invitation and. Um, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you today. Are we going to go Dr. Waisaki and be formal, or is it Joe? No, <laughs> yes. yeah, we're gonna Sorry. Go. Joe is Joe. fine, yeah. Okay. So, um, and I, did, I guess my one thing that I want to say before we kind of get rolling on this is is that, um, I, well, maybe two things. One, I love this book, but, but two, um, there was a time, a, a different time in my life where this is the kind of thing that I did, um, and that time is about 30 years in the rear view for me right now, maybe 25, so I will, I will do my best, but a lot of this is going to be going back from memory and at a time when I, you know, for those who are watching or listening that don't know, I'm, um, I have two master's degrees in in literature um, and completed coursework towards a PhD as well, um, so I used to kind of do this, <laughs> but um, anyway, so... That's all I kind of want to say. And, and, and obviously, for us, from the Department of Athletics perspective, formation development is, you know, what we're here for, as everyone on this campus is. And so we're really thrilled to be part of that um, process. And we think that, um, you know, we do that through the physical lens primarily. But then, obviously, we get engaged in the uh, mental and the spiritual lens, just like Dr. Waisaki or Joe would, would start off with the, with the mental or academic lens and, and work in those other two. So... I think this is kind of cool that we're collaborating and having this conversation today. Yeah, and just to lower the stakes, but I think you're going to do just fine, Stephen, is um, I have, I mean, I'm not an English, uh, that's not my background. I studied political science. My my hook into this book is that I just, I love fly fishing, right? <laughs> and uh, so it actually starts with, the, kind of in a funny way, it starts with the physical aspect for me. I love to do what is done in this book, and that's kind of what drew me to it, so... We are non-experts uh, talking about this. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Thank you both so much for being here and having this, this discussion. Um, Stephen, if you wouldn't mind just kind of sharing a summary, um, a little bit more about the book, A River Runs Through It, just so everyone can kind of fully understand what the book is about. Yeah, I think, I think one of the things I love about the book actually is the, the whole narrative of how it came to be. Um, and so it's very, uh, to something my kids might say, it's very meta. Um, so the, the, the author of the book, first of all, Norm McLean, doesn't even write until he's 70. Um, so he's, he grows up in, in Montana, and he um, is the son of a Scotch Presbyterian minister and his wife. Um, he does have a brother. I mean, this is in some ways autobiographical, the story. He goes off to Dartmouth after working in the U.S. Uh, Forestry Service. And um, he actually is the editor of um, Dartmouth's equivalent of the, of the Lampoon at Harvard, and it's called the Jack-O-Lantern. And the editor-in-chief, interestingly enough, to follow him is a guy named... Um, Theodore uh, Geisel, who most of us know as Dr. Seuss, and um, according to McLean, he's one of the craziest people he ever met, so it's kind of interesting side note, but anyway, so after that, he, he eventually marries Jesse, who's the, one of the characters in the book, and, and they move to Chicago, and he becomes a professor at the University of Chicago, and he has a long, uh, illustrious career as an as a English professor at, at the university, and it's not until he retires that his children convince him to write down some of the stories that he had told them uh, when they were younger. And so he's 70, and he starts embarking on this, um, this journey, and he actually submits um, A River Runs Through It and some of these other stories to, to Knopf, and I'm going to share with you a, a, a little communication that went between the editor at Knopf after they rejected it and then later um, the novel actually came, oh, well not 
we'll talk more about what the genre it actually fits into, but, but the text um, itself um, gets published. And so it's, this is uh, two or three letters after being re- rejected by Alfred A. Knopf, McLean received a letter from the senior New York City editor asking whether um, Knopf could, quote, have the privilege of getting first crack at McLean's next book, unquote. And McLean wrote back, if it should come to pass that the world comes to a place when Alfred A. Knopf is the only publishing company left, and I am the only author, then there will be an end to the world of books. So kind of, a, kind of shows you a little bit about McLean's humor and, and, and how he thought. Also, he's an uh, old, rugged frontiersman kind of person and holds a grudge. But um, <laughs> in, in, in 76, uh, A River Runs Through It is published. And it's the first ever work of fiction that the University of Chicago Press has ever published. And it's a, a very esteemed press, right? Um, it's at University of Chicago, it's English department. These are all pretty prestigious. Um, and, and so for them to, again, one of their own, but, but to put out their first work of fiction is this, is, is, is a statement. And I think also it's important to note, too, that the, one of the readers that um, reviewed the, the text before it was published for McLean is a woman named Marie Broff, who was the first fully tenured professor in English at Yale University. So kind of just an interesting kind of little background to, to this. And then, and then Redford, Robert Redford, finds out about this in 1981, talking to a friend. And so um, he gets excited, and, and he ends up meeting McLean at Sundance in, in the mid-'80s. And um, th- they kind of have a conversation. McLean is a little distrustful of, of Hollywood types and doesn't really want his um, work of art to be um, we said we weren't going to use this word a lot, but I'm going to use it now, bastardized. Mm-hmm, um, yeah. And so um, he he meets with um, McLean three times in Chicago over the course of six weeks and tries to get him to warm up to him. Then finally, kind of they decide, all right, I'm going to write the first draft of the screenplay. And if you feel it's acceptable, then you're out. And if you don't feel it's acceptable, then you can pull the plug on the project. So obviously, McLean approves that draft. Um, the, the, the sad part of the story a little bit is that um, McLean passes in 1990 just as filming is about to start in Montana. Um, and so he doesn't see the filming. He doesn't see the film come out, obviously. Um, Redford, actually, interesting in his um, kind of forward to the, to the most recent publication or ed- edition of the, of the text, says that it might have been for the best thing because he do not know if McLean could have handled the public, um, hmm. the, what would have gone with promoting a movie. Um, and uh, but anyway, so the movie comes out in '92, and it, it wins the Oscar uh, for um, cinematography. I think it's up for best score. It's up for original uh, music. It's also up for screen adaptation. Um, so anyway, it's it's a huge hit, and Brad Pitt's in it, and a lot of people know it for for that reason. And I think that's I can't recall for sure. I don't know about you, Joe, but I think the first time I encountered the text was actually the movie. Normally, especially if you talk to a academic type or an English type they're going to say oh I read the book and the movie's garbage and but I think I saw the movie and was so blown away by the language in the movie that I immediately had to go read the book and then I would argue that the book they're both different they're very Mm -hmm. different actually in fact if you this would be one of those classics if you wrote your essay on what you watched in the movie and turned it into the professor you'd get exposed as you didn't read the book because they're 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 not really correlated completely Um, but anyway they both I think uh, are I think they both bring something to the text, you know, and, and or, or the movie, excuse me, brings something to the text. And, and so anyway, that's a quick overview of maybe the history. And in my mind, it's a little bit, uh, I romanticize it in my mind a little bit like Hemingway walk, walking around Paris with his first novel in a satchel that he ends up losing on a train. And so it it's kind of has its own life, whereas this, this text a little bit for me has its own life too, the way it came about. Beautiful. Well, I guess, um, I feel like within the text, um, I've kind of glanced through it, so you guys have a lot more knowledge than I do, um, but there seems to be a lot of parallels throughout the book itself. Would you guys want to perhaps touch on a few of these um, and share with me what those yeah. might be? Yeah, so, um, you know, it seems to me that you can always start when you're talking about a book, uh, especially in a broad and general way, or really anytime you, you start with the title, like t- titles mean something, and um yeah, I, I haven't really put my finger on exactly the the importance of the title, right? And I, I've been thinking through that, so maybe. But but it does seem that um, there is this constant discussion of the relationship between a rivers, books, and lives. Like so, somehow these things are related for McLean, and he's exploring kind of the relationship between a, a river, a book, and a life, and along with that sort of water and words 
consistently come up. And so, um, yeah, I mean, so we have this book here. It is a book about, you know, that's tied to, to Norm, Norm, Norm McLean's and his brother's life. Uh, you know, it's not exactly, Stephen can talk more about the genre, but right, it's, t- it's tied to their lives. It's tied to a river and, and water and fishing. And um, yeah, he seems to be exploring some kind of interesting philosophic questions there. But I mean, questions about life and happiness and death. Uh, there's some really interesting passages on, on death and, and, and knowing one another and knowing a river, knowing the life of another, knowing another soul and, and the difficulties in being able to do all that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, th- I mean, that's just kind of the, the questions and tensions on, you know, in my mind. I don't know, Stephen, if you wanted to, if you have thoughts I just, about I that. Think, yeah. I, I guess where I go with this a little bit is it, you know, you start off with asking, is this a book about fly fishing? Mm-hmm. Is this a book about religion? Mm-hmm. Is it a book about the religion of fly fishing? Um, I think there's a lot of ways you can go with that. But for me, I kind of come back around to this really is a book about grace, a book about redemption, a a, a book about the ephemeral and fleeting nature of perfection, which I think McLean kind of sets. And again, I'm going to commit the faux pas throughout because of this being funky of of, um, talking about authorial intent, which you're not supposed to do and all that kind of stuff. But um, I do. My, my school of thought does allow okay. that, so it's okay. So yeah. maybe I'm in good company then. In this, in this particular book, it's it's hard not to do so because it is it is fairly autobiographical in, in ways. But it's anyway, we'll talk about genre later. Um, I think, you know, the thing for me is that, that it's it's this dynamic. You, you said parallels. Mm-hmm. I see a lot of, ju- I mean, there are a lot of parallels, no mm-hmm. doubt, but I see a lot of juxtapositions here. One of the right. big binaries that I think the book is about, and again, the river's running through this and cutting through the glacier. I mean, we're talking about, uh, in my mind, a prelapsarian, Edenic, idyllic world that is juxtaposed just outside it by the oncoming uh, progress of science. I mean, it's, it's a little bit like Dover Beach, right, Matthew Arnold? I mean, we have science coming in here. We have modernity coming in here. When you go to Great Falls, when you go to Missoula, it is a very different world than the Blackfoot River. Mm-hmm. And um, these two brothers, along with their father, who are the primary figures in the book, as well as some other, you know, his, his, his brother-in-law and some other folks, um, they're in these two worlds. And they have to navigate these two worlds as one person and try to make sense of these two worlds. And I think it's challenging, you know, it's challenging to see Paul, and we'll talk a lot more about this, I'm sure, Joe, but I mean, Paul is this messianic figure when you put him in the river. When you put him in town, he's about the complete opposite of that. You know, he has very, he's he's a, he's, um, a Greek tragic flawed figure in town. Um, so anyway, I, I don't know. I don't know where we want to go with this, yeah. but because it, it kind of gets big quick, you know, yeah, it opens up. But. Yeah, no, I mean, just um, you know, your remark about fleeting perfection and um, and human activity and, and its ability to approach perfection in the midst of our fallen nature. I mean, I, I'll just keep. I'll bring a few passages out uh, before you know, as as we continue through this. But um, there's just this this great passage early on, um, your first couple of pages where. Uh, you know, Norman's reflecting back on on this um, and 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 this sort of perfection that one can get through, you know, rhythm, the rhythm of fly fishing, approximating the natural rhythms of of right, um, yeah, as you say, sort of prelapsarian nature, but then um, that has to sort of overcome um, the ways in which our fallen nature, us, the doers of the fishing, uh, is. Um, yeah, anyway, just let, me, let me read this passage, and then we uh, It's beautiful. As a Scot and a Presbyterian, my father believed that man by nature was a mess <laughs> and had fallen from an original state of grace. Somehow I early developed the notion that he had done this by falling from a tree. <laughs> As for my father, I never knew whether he believed God was a mathematician, but he certainly believed God could count, and that only by picking up God's rhythms were we able to regain power and beauty. Unlike many Presbyterians, he often used the word beautiful. I just, you know, I love this passage, right? That somehow there's something mathematical, but but it's not mathematical in a cold and sort of, um, you know, modern mechanistic way. It's, mm. There's something sort of beautiful about this rhythm. It's it's beautiful. My wife and I, she's a, she's a mathematician who studied great books as an undergraduate, and uh, I could never understand it, but she, she'd talk about math. And not in a way of like its usefulness. You'd always say, 
these these mathematical proofs are beautiful. And I'd go like, what are you talking about, right? And uh, But you get it, right? There's this sense of like the, the orderliness, uh, our fallen state, and then our attempt to constantly re-grasp that. And, you know, one can kind of romanticize fly fishing mm. doing this, but... Mm. Um, you know, she'll say it to me all the time. I go out there on my own without any friends. And most of the time I don't catch much or anything. She's, what, what, is, what is it? You know, I, I, I could do it for hours. Just back and forth, right? That four count rhythm that he's talking about. Yep. And there's something about it, right? Anyway, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, and he, you know, it's, it's, there's, you know, in the, the next page, there's this really interesting passage where, um, you know, the father just, you know, is he, is he some, the father who's insisting on order and this rhythm is he just some sort of tyrant who wants to, you know, restore, uh, you know, another brick in the wall, English schoolboy, <laughs> you know, discipline. Um, and there's just this great line. His father, you know, um, is pushing this four count rhythm, this way in which you, in way in which you fish. And there's this great line uh, that, that his son says, right? Um, if our father had his way, nobody who did not know how to fish would be allowed to disgrace a fish by catching him. Right, so like if you got if you got lucky and you were just really good at it, um, I, somehow you weren't doing it right. Like you need to you need to perfect this thing, this order. Um, I don't know. I just find this to be an interesting passage. Yeah, but I, th- I, I what I I really love the line of it, it is an art performed, right, and yeah. a four count rhythm from ten to two. Right, and even that, if we start talking later at some point about the poetry of the language, like actually that language, if you parse it, is in a four count rhythm. <laughs> and so it, there's so many and, and this is the thing too you gotta I mean again I'm, I'm maybe um, superimposing onto the text some things but I sit there and go this guy studied and taught English his entire life within the first five paragraphs he's mentioned true good and beautiful that's to me there's no and again I'm making the mistake of authorial intent but as the reader I'm going to sit here and say well, wait a second he's definitely knows what he's doing this is a craftsman this is not somebody who f- fell into it and got lucky you know um he knows what he's doing and so we're having a contemplation of the true the good and the beautiful and and therefore to to joe's point like the when we start talking about the art we start talking about the grace we start talking about the craft we start talking about you know redemption is not even possible in, in in the language that's being used in the text without these things and then we start using this and extrapolating about how do you create art how do you create literature how how do you communicate with another person and and convey meaning and I think that's one of the biggest things in the whole text that's underneath. When we talk about what's under the water and what's under the rocks and what, how does that all work? The last paragraph, which I'm sure we'll talk about, which is brilliantly written. Um, you're starting to talk about com- communication, conveying meaning. Can I connect with another human being and really understand and have them understand me? And I think that's what Norman is chasing throughout the text. And what keeps avo- he keeps reaching out to Paul and can't quite grasp it. And that's the haunting for him that he's talking about later is I never really knew my brother. Yeah. I never really knew my father. Um, I, and they're the people I knew better than anyone else in my entire life. And so how do I, through this text, through communication, through language, how do I connect with another person and create that, again, that beauty, yeah. right? That, that seems so fleeting, so ephemeral, but, but throughout this text, it does, it's not this thing that's, it's not, you're not looking at, I don't think, Plato's cave and the wall and seeing a reflection of it. You're seeing it, mm-hmm. but you're not seeing it very frequently, and you're not seeing it for very long. Right. And that's what happens when Paul escapes his father's right. 10 to 2 right. and breaks free. Yeah. yeah. And it seems to me, yeah, the, the question of human freedom is so important in the book, right? And I mean, even, even before that scene where Paul, the great fisherman, who's like the great artist who can kind of take the tradition he's given, take take the rules and then go go beyond that. Like you, you need the, those rules and then you move beyond it. But even in that first line, you know, it's it's a 10 and 2 rhythm. And then he says, but it's not quite, what does he say? The father, it's not quite 10. Right, it's closer it's, to 12 than 2. Right, yeah. And so you kind of go, oh, this, there's something of, of in it, when it comes to this human, right? This is, it's not, the river's natural, the fish are natural. Uh, you, you know, you're using these flies to make it look natural, but there's something human in it that's not quite exact. Um, and... I mean, this is when we start getting in. There's this great passage where, you know, he's, he looks at a dead river. Maybe we can talk about that, yeah. right? This, this dead river. And from the surface, it looks smooth. And then underneath, <laughs> there are all these violent and jagged turns and things. But, yeah. Anyway. Um, 
Beautiful, beautiful. I guess, would you guys mind diving deeper into the characters, um, specifically Paul and Norman? Um, and just from first glance, I kind of seem like there's a play of the, um, like the, uh, sorry, um, the, uh, sorry, <laughs> um, the prodigal son parable. Mm. I didn't know if you guys could kind of bring that, if that has any play in this at all, or if you guys wanted to touch on that. I think it is in play. Um, I would say that it's, I don't want to demean, belittle, or, or um, prioritize either, but I don't think, I think it's more complex in this than simply um, Paul's the prodigal, he comes home. Now, there's definitely, some, I mean, certainly with the way the mother reacts to Paul versus right. how she reacts to Norman, um, I think you can see that. Um, the, the father, too. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the, the loss that the father feels um, is, but I think there's more, First of all, there's the loss, right? He, and, and it's interesting, the father doesn't even walk well from the point Paul dies, mm -hmm. moving on. Now, he's also getting older, but um, he, he's definitely transformed in a physical, visible way. Mm -hmm. um, it's so painful for him. Um, but I, I, think, I, I think that the father and Norman have a connection that's different. And Paul almost, when he's fishing... It's, it's the fact that the two of them are really good fishermen that they can appreciate how great Paul is. Mm -hmm. But they also can't appreciate fully how great Paul is because it's, it's almost supernatural. I mean, he's transcendent. Um, and they, they can recognize it. Um, but it also is then more painful that Paul has these demons alcohol, gam gambling being the primary one, right? The big stud game, um, um, the, the alcohol, women, um, and really his own hubris. Like it's, it, again, when I go back to the Greek tragedy, one of the things that Norman keeps talking about with Paul is, the problem with Paul is he, he thinks, he, he, the thing that makes him so good, right? His self-confidence mm -hmm. is the thing that also undermines him because he won't allow anyone to help him. Yeah. And, and this is, again, one of the things I think that Norman really, struggles with and it finds extremely painful even past you know 40 years after Paul's death right. is that he couldn't help him and he wouldn't allow him to help him so we have the desk sergeant talking yeah. about the same problem with his brother we have Jesse talking about the same problem with her brother Neil um, and this is a recurring yeah. theme that that's that's happening throughout but I don't know if you have thoughts about prodigal yeah. son and the two brothers yeah and... I mean yeah so I mean the big difference that he hit on right of course is that he I mean, it doesn't end well for Paul in terms of uh, he, he has a bad, seemingly a bad death. Yeah, I mean, one interesting area where uh, you could tie it in but see the difference might be the sort of confession, right? I mean, the, the big turning point for um, the prodigal son, well, I mean, he comes to decide to go home to his father, and then the first thing he does, right, when, when he comes to the realization, I will confess openly, right? I've, he says to himself first before he does it, right? I'll confess and say, I've sinned before you and before God. And then he goes back home. I've sinned against you and against heaven. Mm -hmm. And he does it. So confession's kind of interesting here in this, in this work, right? We don't, we don't have Paul kind of openly coming back and, and doing something like that. But there's these interesting kind of a, at least two scenes where they're talking with one another. And um, there, there's always sort of this game. Like, um, like the game sounds... Um, belittling there's it's it's a sort of cautious um back and forth with the two brothers and um paul who's a reporter is always sort of telling these stories about um these misdeeds of these of these people out there and and norman suspects that paul is talking about himself mm -hmm. right that he's that he feels sort of morally bound in some way to confess his deeds to his brother without actually saying that it's him. Um, you know, and, and that raises kind of some interesting questions for me. You know, why is it that Paul can't talk about himself? Is it, is it a sense of shame, but he still wants to, you know, feels that he, that he has a need to confess? Is it, you know, that he doesn't want to burden his brother? I don't know, you have thoughts about why, why is it that he, well, yeah, why can't he be open? Uh, I don't know. Well, I think I think it's it's the household to some extent. It's that's the upbringing, right? I mean, they, they they are brought up. I mean, 
uh, you you read the opening lines of the of it, and they say, you know, there was one day a week that was devoted right. to this one thing, um, and that was religion. And right. and you know that's why we keep coming back to like the first line of the book is that there's no clear line between religion and fly fishing in his family, right? And so that's not saying that that's not belittling religion. That's saying these two things were so important yeah. that that's there was it was really hard to distinguish between them, and one became the other kind of thing in a way. They they maybe going back to the river running through a concept. Um, so it's such a significant, central, integral part of their lives and his upbringing that Paul, I think, is fully aware that he is letting the family down in a way, letting himself down in a way, letting his brother down in a way, and he can't seem to control that, which I'm sure is intensely painful for Paul. Mm-hmm. Um to not be able to break free, ironically enough, he can break free on the river, um, but he cannot break free from his vices or his foibles um, in town. I, and this is kind of the way I just, it's reductive, but I just kind of think of these two different settings and how he's very human in one of them and he's, he's you know, superhuman, messianic in the other one. Um, but again, I think it's, it's interesting though, McLean kind of, again, this is sort of, um, Norman's much better in town as a functioning human being, mm-hmm. right? The the father and 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 the mother are kind of away from reality in a way, um, and they've they've made choices to to do that. And I think some of that is, is is has to do with religion as well and their their faith and their commitment. And 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 it's a positive. I'm not trying to present that as as anything other than that. But I I do think I think Paul struggles with a lot of I mean, he's not unaware, and he knows when he interacts with Norman um, that on some level Norman's attempts to help him is judgment, is pity, um, mm-hmm. and it's also Big Brother. You know, I mean, it's, it's another dynamic of this sibling, you know, piece. You know, um, there's some Cain and Abel in here as well as possibly just not not just prodigal son. You yeah. know, mm-hmm. um, so. Um, I guess um, you had mentioned earlier that there was some debate as far as concerning the genre of the specific title. Could yeah. you dive deeper a little yeah, bit Yeah, I don't know that? if there's debate, but I, I would mm-hmm. say in my mind, right? Mm-hmm. So so this is called a novella all the time, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, but it, but if you go, if you read the text, right, mm-hmm. there's no chapter breaks. Mm-hmm. There's really nothing but paragraphs, and it just runs. It's one, it's one straight through, right? Mm-hmm. So to me, and then when I read the language, Right. Really, this is where this is why this book is important to me is the language um, of it. Um, yes, thematically, it's brilliant and 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 gets into great depth. Um, but it's it's to me the language that I read it. Joe and I talk about this all the time. That he'll he'll tell you later. There's a line in the book that he almost cannot not tear up now, and he's read it five thousand times. Like I've read this thing so many times, but I I'm telling you, there's a I'll I'll just share this with you real quick. There's this one piece here. That every time I read, like the, the hairs on my arm stand up, and this is this is the penultimate paragraph halfway through. Then in the Arctic light, excuse me. Then in the Arctic half light of the canyon, all existence fades to a being with my soul, and memories and the sounds of the Big Blackfoot River, and a four count rhythm, and the hope that a fish will rise. Mm-hmm. And to me, that I mean, every time I read it, and you can probably hear a little bit of emotion in my voice right now. And, and so it's this concept of, to me, it's, and this may be uh, too much, but it's, it's a moment where you are one with Christ. You are present, fully present. And the, when the fish rises, the, the feeling for a fish, and I'm not, I don't profess to be a very good fisherman, but the, I, I have had this experience, right? That it's the moment when the fish hits your line mm-hmm. that right. you are now one with everything around, and that's kind of what he's getting at in the text oftentimes, is how there's this oneness, there's this pure presence. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's this ephemeral, fleeting thing. Right. You might lose that fish two seconds later, you might get off the hook, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but that moment there, that electric moment, um, to me, is is really, really powerful. Mm-hmm. And um, so I come back to the, the genre thing, right? This is an epic poem to me. It is, I'm not trying to say it's the Iliad, or it's the Odyssey, or it's the Aeneid. I'm not saying it's the Fairy Queen. I'm not saying it's um, Paradise Lost or Divine Comedy. But I think it's an epic poem. 
Um, but it defies those conventions as well. Like if you try to apply all the, I mean, we probably could sit there really quickly and say, well, yeah, but it doesn't meet the criteria on this, you know. But I just, I think it defies genre, quite frankly. It, it's not, to me, creative nonfiction. Even though I don't know if anybody even used that term yet when he was writing this way. Like I, I think that, to me, that's, I remember that term coming into vogue like in the 90s and 2000s. Maybe it was prior to that and I just wasn't aware. Um, but anyway, um, it, and it's not an autobiography. It's not autobiographical, biographical technically either, because there's a lot of liberty taken here. There's a lot of fiction in the text relative to what we know happened. Like Paul dies in Chicago, mm -hmm. in real life, mm -hmm. so he does go with Norman to Chicago. Um, in the movie, he never leaves yeah. Missoula, you know, or the, or the area. In the book, he does. He says he's never going to leave either, right. um, but he does in in, re, in real life. Mm -hmm. So, anyway, I just think I come back. The reason I want to make this statement about it defying genre is really because I want to emphasize the fact and probably the reason that I brought the Yale professor up earlier she was a poet and she if you read um, McLean's uh, forward to the to the oh no his acknowledgments excuse me to the text he talks about her at the end and basically says if you read what I wrote early and then you read what I wrote later you'll see how much attention I paid to the lady from Yale um, when she told me to stop writing my things just so factually and simply, but mm -hmm. she's like, you left out all the poetry. Yeah. And so then, so anyway, to me, it's, this is, is a, it's a great work of, of epic poetry. And um, it's, it's amazing to me how over a hundred and roughly 15 pages, it's sustained, like how mm -hmm. the level of the language is is so moving in my estimation throughout that entire 115 pages it's really powerful yeah. it's 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 quite a, an accomplishment yeah. um and again to me it's like hey this is like the one thing this guy wrote it's not the only thing he wrote technically but it's the one thing everybody knows and he didn't write it till he was in his 70s and it was almost like he waited his whole life to write this one brilliant thing you know yeah yeah, you know, it's interesting, as you, as you mentioned, that he, he writes when he's older. And again, you know, we're not supposed to do this, maybe, but tying his life uh, to the work. But, you know, there's this, it seems like there's this sense that, um, you know, look, there's this problem of knowledge here, right? Mm. Of knowing another person, mm. right? And especially knowing someone when you're in the midst of it, right? Like when you're in the middle of the life, when I, when everything's going on. And you want this knowledge because you want this sort of useful knowledge, right? Like, you, like I want to help you, right? You have these people in your lives and you have these problems that you have and you're trying to figure out causes and effects, right? What, what, what is the cause for this? How can we deal with this? Um, and that seems to be always fleeting from Norman with his brother, right? I just, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. But my line, and I'll read it in a minute where I'll, I'll almost tear up at the end, um, it's kind of a completion of this this earlier passage, uh, you know, kind of ties back to this question I had about the, the relationship between rivers and lives and and what we see and what we don't see in others and, and what we're seeking to understand and how somehow we get to a better sense of that as a life comes to its completion. It's still not perfect, but we can maybe get what we need, like the most important thing. So I'll, I'll just point to these two passages. There's, there's one where uh, they go out fishing together, Norman and, and Paul, and uh, Norman's talking about a river he's seen that's dried up, right? It's a, it's a, in, in essence, it's a dead river. And he's looking at it in, from these kind of different perspectives. Uh, so he says the following, even the anatomy of the river was laid bare. So the, Not far downstream was a dry channel where the river had once, had run once, and part of the way to come to know a thing is through its death. That's a like, really interesting line. Part of the way to come to know a thing is through its death. But years ago, I had known the river when it flowed through this now dry channel, so I could enliven its stony remains with the waters of memory. In death, it had its pattern, and we can only hope, we can only hope for as much. Its overall pattern was a favorite, the favorite serpentine curve of the artist sketched on the valley from my hill to the last hill. I could get to see on the other side. So there's the artist's portrayal, right? Like we're, we're trying to make a unity. We're trying to smooth out and tell the story of this river that we saw from the surface when it was full, right? Um, and, um, and an artist tries to do this with life when it tells a story. But 
in, in the nitty-gritty midst of it, right? What we don't see. But internally, it was made of sharp angles. This is now you can see it at the bottom, right? That the water's not there. It ran seemingly straight for a while, turned abruptly, then ran smoothly again, then met another obstacle. Again, was turned sharply and again ran smoothly. Straight lines that couldn't be exactly straight and angles that couldn't have been exactly right angles became the artist's most beautiful curve and swept from here across the valley to where it could be no longer seen. Right? So the, these underlying things that we can't see uh, that are hidden from us. Um, there's this beautiful, what we'll talk about the last line in a minute, the, this beautiful um, life above it, but we can't see the messiness underneath. Um, and, and, and pulling this all together in the midst of it is, is almost impossible. Um, so anyway, I mean, this, this ties to the last line. I, I, think, I think he's reflecting, I think this is tied to his brother here. I mean, the, the river that he's looking at, um, and what he's describing here is, is in a way, his brother's life. You know, at, at, after Paul dies and he's, he's murdered, right? And his father is trying to understand it and he's trying to understand it. Um, there's this, this conversation between the two of them. Um, and he says, um, you know, his father's asking him, do you know what happened? Do you know what happened to Paul? And he says, I've said, I've told you all I know if you push me far enough, all I really know is that he was a fine fisherman. I, I don't know anything else. And then his father says, you know, <laughs> you know more than that, my father said. He was beautiful. Yes, I said, he was beautiful. He should have been. You taught him. And, and in a way, right, what, what we're seeking for, and there's this theme of trying to help people and, and not being able to, you, you want to know so you can do, so you can act. That's our human impulse. We want to fix things. Um, but, you know, as, as children of God, what we need to know, right, about one another, the most important thing is that these people are beautiful, right? You, that, and that is, and that's, that's not nothing. That is the most important thing, ultimately. Um, it, and it may not make us feel good in the midst of it when we're struggling to try to fix these things. But, man, anyway, I... Um, I, I, I think also that what happens in the text a little bit is, or is, is revealed to us in the text somewhat is with the retrospective, or if you're afforded, and again, that's one of the things, like we're, this is supposedly 1937 where all this is happening mm -hmm. in a pretty short window of time. And, um, but he's writing it and he, he, he breaks the, if you want to call it the frame or whatever, constantly saying, I'm looking at this back from the current moment, looking mm -hmm. back at it. Um, and I think what that affords the Norman, the narrator, a little bit is the perspective that um, it's okay to not have all the answers. Whereas at a previous stage in my life, I need to have, and I think this is very true for all of us, right? When we're young, and in fact, it's, I can recall, in fact, going back to graduate school, even saying once or twice, oh yes, I've read that book when I hadn't, because I was desperate for no one to think that I didn't know it or didn't read it. Whereas now at this stage in my life, I'm much more comfortable saying, so, no, I haven't read that. Tell me about it. You know, like it's not a, um, I'm not going to be judged neg negatively necessarily because I haven't read every book that someone else has read, you know? So I think one of the things that's happening in this text is, is that you kind of get the distance and the space um, from time passing, obviously, is one thing, but also uh, an awareness, almost the grace, right? This is what I'm kind of getting at mm. is that the, the redemption and the grace comes from an awareness that I, I can only do what I can do. Um, and though Norman is still haunted by the waters, this is a little bit like Springsteen's river to me a little bit. Mm. He's going back to the, he can't not go back to this river, even if it's desiccated and in some space and, and at first glance doesn't look like it, you know, the way the artist would want it to look, mm. you would think. Um, but he still has to keep coming back. And it's, it's because of the communion that he's having in those waters with those people from his past that simultaneously haunt him, but also, I don't know, even write the word, right word for him, you know. Ground? No, I don't Yeah. Yeah. But it, but it is, a, I think it's a communal act that's happening in the water with him, not just with nature, but right. with his yeah. father, with his brother, with 
everyone else that he, you know, feels, even his wife, because in the book too, Jesse's passed, um, and so he's he's missing her, um, and they have a very powerful, um, you know, moment where they connect, and it's it, the, the connection um, is really just a peck between a, a cracked door, quite honestly. It's, it's just when they, they kind of have worked through a really difficult moment that Neil is the, the cause of, and, and nearly, you know, even Norman senses, like, hey, if we, we allow this, he will split us up. This is, that's how powerful this um, moment is. And, and they work through it, and it's just a quick kiss, and she says, hey, go, go fishing with your brother. That's what you need mm -hmm. to do, and let me take care of my brother. And go help each. We'll, we'll help each other, and and very subtle. Yeah, very subtle. Yeah. Um, so, I also think there's a lot of humor. I mean, we don't have time oh, yeah. now, but the, yeah. the book is is brilliantly funny, um, and again, subtly. So in many ways, mm -hmm. even like one one. There's one passage where he talks about how um, in the good old days, um, and he's talking about science and modernism and all this kind of stuff coming in. But but he kind of does it with tongue in cheek, saying. It, it, there, we, there used to be a time where all the beer in the world didn't come from Milwaukee, well, Minneapolis, and St. Louis, and it was a much better time, yeah. you know? And it's just kind of a very subtle way of kind of talking about a very big, or his father saying, yeah, um, it's been a half billion years. Because it was, you know, even the joke in the book is sort of, this was his father's concession to science, right? He wasn't going to strictly say that, he, he, he believed that God had created the earth, but he had conceded a little bit, maybe it didn't all happen in six days. Because... You have to concede the ice age if you're going to love the river because that's what create the glaciers is what created the river, and so that's a, it's an interesting dynamic there too of like oh we're, we're I called it earlier a idyllic Edenic prelapsarian world but really truly it's probably more an antediluvian world it's post flood world um, great flood world and so but how do you acknowledge that thing because that didn't happen in the first six days. That's that's a problem from a religious standpoint mm -hmm. if you're going to be really literal about things, right? Mm -hmm. But again, this is part of the breaking free, I think. This is part of the communicative nature of language. This is part of the craft of writing is all these things. These are all stories, right? And how really the whole point of all these stories is I'm trying to connect with my God, with my family, with myself. I'm trying to make sense of all these things, find meaning in all these things. And it's so darn hard mm -hmm. and, again, so ephemeral, so fleeting and so in the text, though, there's these moments where it happens. And some of them are quite funny, too. They're not all um, <laughs> transcendental. That's Let's right, put it right, that way. Right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's, it seems, you know, as I think through, you know, the, the faith, the faith element of this and, you know, yeah, I don't know where, where Norman McLean sort of winds up on some of these questions, but at the very least, he seems sort of haunted by haunted by the question, right? Like haunted by, um, was Flannery O'Connor, right? Haunt, haunted by, Christ haunted South. There's mm. sort of like a mm. God hauntedness for him here. Um, and, you know, from the beginning, right? The first line or, you know, the first paragraph where uh, his father would take them fishing and um, he would make them recite from the catechism, right? Yep. From, the, from the Calvinist catechism, right? Yep. Uh, and he would only make them do one question, right? It's like, the, kind of, it's, it's pretty close to the first question of the, of the you know, Catholic Baltimore catechism, yep. right? But um, what is chief it? Chief aim of man yeah, is chief, to, glorify to glorify God, God and enjoy and him forever, him forever. Yeah. right? And he, this, is, this always seemed to satisfy him as indeed such a beautiful answer should have, right? So it satisfies Norman, it satisfies his father. Um, and then, yeah, you know, I don't, at the end, he's there's this question about which came first, right? The water or the words, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. and um, you know, and the word. Um, so uh, at one point, Norman's talking with his father, and he says, uh, you know, which came first, the the water or the words? And his father said, of course, it was the the word and the words, uh, and then and then the flood, right? And then the waters. And yep. He says, I think Paul would say it's the water, but actually his father says, no, Paul would say it's the words too. Yeah. Right? And so, um, and this is- Which is interesting because he's more akin, right? Paul is more akin to his father's dogma, whatever, um, mm -hmm. religious conviction. Right. And then Norman is in this one instance, um, and, and Norman's kind of superimposes on his father. Oh, well, you're saying the word because you're a preacher. Right. First and a fisherman second. And that's why he says Paul would say the opposite. He's like, no, 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 Paul would not because we both know. 
how this actually works. And in, the, I, I think what's really powerful, too, is his concept about the raindrops in the mud yeah. and, and all that. But um, anyway, go back to and what do you make of that? Yeah. But what, do, what do you make of that last uh, scene about? I mean, it's the yeah. All things merge into one that paragraph. Right. Yeah. Talk so here, we'll read it real quick yeah, and, and then try to talk about it a little yeah. bit. So. And this is immediately after when I said the, 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 the lines earlier about the fish will rise. Mm -hmm. So eventually, all things merge into one, and a river runs through it. The river was cut by the world's great flood and runs over rocks from the basement of time. On some of the rocks are timeless raindrops. Under the rocks are the words, and some of the words are theirs. I am haunted by waters. It's much better when Redford reads it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but, but it's 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 really really powerful. And I think one of the things it's it's going to sound maybe like cop out, but I think one of the things that's going on in here for me at least is, again, meaning, ephemeral, fleeting. As soon as I think I got it, I second guess it, and then I go back to it again. And what I've gotten better at because I've read the text so many times is I can see all the foreshadowing. I can see the brilliance. Of McLean, because when the, the 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 most powerful image for the whole text I'm learning over time is not the river, it's the mother's metronome. It's that's the thing that's happening in this text over and over. It's ten to two on a four count rhythm throughout the whole text. If you go look up, look for the word beautiful. Look for I mean just it, it's just amazing how many times the certain things keep coming up. How many things are foreshadowed? How many times we talk about I didn't know him? How many times there's I can't help him? How many different ways that's explored in different relationships? Um, it's really in, in the way I come back to like you know a novella being a short novel. It's actually even shorter than it really is. He just keeps repeating the same things over and over again, which you could see mm. again as, oh, he's lazy or oh, not very creative or whatever. But no, I keep coming back to the metronome, you know, and, and the father clapping on the leather glove. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so that's, I, I keep coming back to that tech. Now we can talk a little bit more about what I think's going on there or what you think's going on there. But I think part of what's going on there is the water keeps going over the rocks and it's constantly changing. Mm -hmm. And you're going to think you've got it and then all of a sudden, you're going to be like, wait, where did it go? You know, and I'm going to try and get it again. Yeah, yeah. yeah I guess the question I always have is, is there something constant? Does, does, does McLean think there's anything stable and constant under all this? Because for him, it's not the word under it, right? There's this passage where they're fishing with the father, the last fishing trip, right? The last fishing mm -hmm. trip with the father, and he's saying, and his dad's reading... Um, the opening to the Gospel of John, right? Mm -hmm. And in the beginning, there was the Word. Um, and then they get to that conversation about which is first, the Word or the water, right? And it's in a way sort of chaos or reason, right? Like Christ, and, and he has the Greek... And the Father refers to as a good book. Like, he's what are you reading? I'm reading a good book. A good book. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's a good book. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so he, and he's talking about logos, right? That first, mm. that, that word, right? Of, um, of, you know, Christ as logos, as this, as reason, and it's kind of funny. In some ways, Paul is like, you'd think he'd be water, not only because he's a fisherman, but because he's sort of chaotic, like, you know, the, at the beginning of Genesis with the waters and, and the chaos, but he's not, right? Um, but yeah, you know, but, but at the end, it's, you know, for, for McLean, it's under the rocks are the words, and some of the words are theirs. I guess he's talking about the words of his, you know... Is is what he has sort of like his his father and his brother? Is that mm. what's rooted? Is there? Can he not quite make the theological commitment, you know, to the word? But I don't know. Yeah. No, I yeah. well, I don't. Maybe maybe I, the way again. This is always going to be individual. I, the way I read it is is that it is the theirs includes Paul, includes yeah, yeah. his father, right. certainly, right? Um, I don't see him um, having struggle with being committed to conviction and, and belief in, in, in the word or God or any of that, I, I kind of see this as all inclusive. Like he's just like, yeah. it's all of this. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, I, I don't, the struggle I think keeps coming back to, I'm not sure I'm reading them right or mm. am I hearing them right or am I hearing them all yeah. or, you know, did I ever understand what they were saying to me? Um, is yeah. that even possible? Yeah. You know, but I, I think I think he knows it is because yeah. I think he's seen in other <laughs> moments in the text that, that there was yeah. that true connection. Yeah. I mean, when his father tries to pat him on the knee, even though he misses, misses yeah. when when Paul's catching that fish, that is a moment where I think that the father's saying we're in the presence of mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. You know, 
Um, and he wants to share that with his other son. Yeah. Um, but he, yeah. he's also human and flawed, and so he misses. Yeah. You know? um, yeah. what, what do you think the haunting is? Is it, um, is it, I could have helped? Is that the haunting? I made mistakes and I could have helped? Or when he says he's haunted by the... Yeah, I, well, and, I, think, I think on one level, for sure, there, yeah. there's no doubt that he feels uh, personal responsibility for Paul's death. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he didn't know how to get Paul to allow him to help him. Now, he also mentions early in the text that Paul was kind of born, like the, the I don't know, you know, first couple pages of the book when we first get a kind of introduction to Paul was that Paul was born with this thing in him that he wanted to bet people um, right. from the get-go. And um, and he would try to go to the state fairs and, and put bets down, but he didn't have enough money for them to take the bet, and he was a little kid, and they wouldn't. So he, he was kind of had this flaw or whatever you want sure. to call it from you know, original sin, perhaps, yeah, right. from the get-go and, um, and couldn't overcome it. But I think that the hauntings also um, that the passing of time. I think the haunting is also loss of Jesse. I think it's you know the loss of his father and his mother. It's the loss of the ability to to, to fish the big water himself yeah. that he can no longer do. You know which he his father um, kind of ruse um, early on that he's in fact the father is almost like I don't even know if I should go fishing with you two. As as thrilled as he is that his sons asked him, yeah. he doesn't want to go in a way because he doesn't want to limit especially Paul's ability yeah, to go fish right. yeah. the big the big river and, and, and the, the way that it needs to be done. Um, so I think there's a lot of, a, a lot of layers to that haunting, just like there's a lot of layers to the, to the rocks and, um, and the glacier cutting through it and, and all that. And, um, so yeah, I, I, the hard thing about this is I don't think there is a, I think this is art. we're now we're talking about art yeah. and I don't think there's a, an interpretation yeah. necessarily yeah. that's going to be, make us all feel that we have resolved yeah. <laughs> or resolution. Thank you guys so much for this discussion. Uh, I feel like I've learned so much about this book already. Um, thank you for our audience for listening as well. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share with your friends on social. Um, Conversatio is available through Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. Until next time, God bless. God bless. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank yeah. you guys. Sure.